Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network in Psychology. My name is Akir Englander, your host. Today we will speak with Pilar Jennings, the writer of To Heal a Wounded Heart, The Transformative Power of Buddhism and Psychotherapy in Action, published in Shambhala in 2017. The book explores what happened when a therapist invites her Buddhist teacher into her clinic in order to help her with a unique client who suffers from great trauma. In the book, she asks questions about the similar but also deep differences of how to deal with trauma in Western culture and Buddhism-Tibetan tradition. By inviting her Buddhist teacher to the clinic, she maybe also desires to offer him to touch his trauma too. Pilar Jennings is a psychoanalyst in private practice with a focus on the clinical applications of Buddhist meditation. She has been working with patients and their families through the Harlem Family Institute since 2004, a visiting lecturer at Union Theological Seminar and a guest lecturer at Columbia University. So Pilar, thank you so much for being with us in the New Book Network. It is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So my first question is, can you tell us a little bit about your maybe childhood or your spiritual um, background that you share some in the book and also how it led you to becoming maybe a therapist, maybe an anecdote that you say like, okay, maybe it's good that I will become a therapist, but also the sources of Buddhism in your life. Sure. So my my childhood background in terms of spirituality and religion is uh, fairly eclectic. Uh, my my mother uh, is ethnically Jewish, but born and raised in Peru uh, by a father who fled fled Hungary just before World War II and raised his family in Peru. And so I think there was a a sense in my mother's consciousness that there's something about religion that really matters that needs to be grappled with. Mm. I think she's also by her nature, uh, a spiritually curious person. And uh, my father was born and raised in New York city, uh, born during the great depression. And, Uh, like many people of his generation, was primarily focused on issues of survival. Mm -hmm. And I think he also had a sense of the meaning of spirituality, but did not feel like there was a lot of time to allow for that inquiry. I would suggest that survival was really the organizing principle. And... um, And so I grew up, at least in the the first seven or eight years, in a a household that was not 
explicitly religious or spiritual in nature. But again, there was the sense of spirituality hovering. And so my mother and I went to a number of different spiritual communities, uh, including uh, taking a Buddhist meditation class. And so I was introduced at a fairly young age to to the concept of religion. We also went to Presbyterian Church and we went to Shul. Uh, so there was really a sense that this is this is something that matters that we can explore without having to uh, cultivate an identity around a particular religious path. And. In terms of what contributed to my curiosity about becoming a clinician, I think it has everything to do with with life experience and simply growing up in a complex world. There were many, many global events uh, happening throughout my formative years. And so I was noticing that life seems to be complex As we were just saying a few moments ago, it seems to offer ongoing, unexpected experience. And I was certainly hearing from my parents that this was true for them personally, that that their experience was multi-layered, had elements that they understood and elements they didn't. And I, I think I was just growing curious about the human condition and what we might need in order to navigate all of this uncertainty, tumult, and adventure. Yes. Um, so I, I also wonder um, how much, since you mentioned that your father, he came to Peru from Hungary just before the Second World War? My grandfather, yeah. Your grandfather. Um, did he, uh, sorry, your grandma, your grandfather, sorry. And how much was the Holocaust part of their life? Um, because it, it's so interesting because in, in at least in Israel, we speak a lot about this generation, these people who had the luck um, to just run away before. Mm. and But questions about the family that they left questions about guilt was there in the narrative of them and then they pass it was it there in 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 your narrative of your grandpa it is my sense that there certainly was an element of guilt which may have contributed to his wish to to become a physician perhaps to compensate for the feeling of having left those who whom he loved and may have needed him and trying to offer his care to others. But from what I understand, this was all very much under wraps. My grandfather did not discuss his heritage mm. with my mother or her sister. Uh, it wasn't until she was in adulthood that she discovered she was Jewish. Wow. So it was a real decision there. Yeah, as, as far as I understand, and again, there may have been unconscious elements, there may have been so much guilt that it became difficult to risk addressing directly. Yeah. And one more thing that's um, coming to my mind, and I think it's very relevant to, to the book, um, 
In the book, we have your teacher, um, Lama um, Pema, mm-hmm. that, um, that he's coming from a very strong one tradition. Um, and, then, and then he's coming to America. And you can see that there is some tension, at least as a reader, I felt, for someone who come from such a different background with a history of himself that we will come later to, but he coming with a tradition. And then we have the image of the therapist, which is you in a way, um, because it's it's still literature, um, that you hold a few kind of traditions. Um, and I wonder if you can tell us as a therapist, but also as a scholar, as someone who, who teach people who are going to become um, leaders um, in different um, religious communities, um, can you tell us something about the tension between people who hold strong one tradition to the people that we hold more collective of traditions? Mm. That's a wonderful question. And what I experienced with my teacher and I've experienced it with other people in my life is uh, a quality of devotion that is also deeply woven into his sense of self even though there's, there's a certain irony there because the Buddha Dharma suggests that we don't have a fixed conventional self. Yes. But what I, what I have experienced in my, my friendship with Lama Pema and as his students is that his, there's a reverence. There's a reverence to the Buddha Dharma uh, and that the teachings of the Buddha uh, have become his his organizing principles for how to live a life, for how to be in this world. And I have I have developed immense appreciation for those teachings. And as you're suggesting, I've also been influenced by other approaches to the human condition. And and I noticed that most explicitly uh, in terms of my clinical training, perhaps more so than my exposure to other religious traditions. So I find myself drawn to, to bringing different traditions into conversation, perhaps as a way of expanding my understanding of the many different ways we can live a life and the extraordinary complexity of being a person. I I sometimes have found that the potential pitfall of having uh, unquestionable devotion to one perspective or one tradition is the tendency to not notice what isn't addressed in that tradition Mm. or what is, is simply minimized. Can you give us an example? Yeah. I mean, again, as much, and I say this with such respect because I have been uh, personally supported by the teachings, especially the wisdom teachings of Buddhism. And I, I noticed pretty quickly that there is no, there's no Dharma, if you will, there's no religious text on early childhood. So there is a, a presumption 
that we will all find our way through early childhood and cultivate the the capacities that we need in order to grow and transcend our difficulties. That's that's a big difference. Whereas in Western psychology, it's not that there isn't curiosity about our ability to really evolve and flourish and be transformed, but the emphasis historically has been on early life and especially very early life, infancy, and first couple of years of life. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I love it so much. So I grew up in a Jewish mystical Hasidic community, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking so much about the change of gender, actually, between the first years where boys are growing up only in the female with the woman, you know, in the area of the woman tent. And, you know, you're not allowed to cut the hair of the child and of the boys only until the age of three. So we all look like girls. And then come this beautiful ceremony um, where you shave the whole hair and you only leave the pious. The, um, and um, you, in a way, become a boy in one moment. Mm-hmm. And you are taken by your father to the synagogue and lick the honey, which are the letters into your body. And I think about the transformation and how much it's so interesting that the first years are in one area or one sphere, and then you you change. And there is something more in Western cultures that I find that it's more, you have a path and then you have different layers inside the path, mm-hmm. but you are chosen to be a boy or a girl in um like from the first moment um mm-hmm. yes um so one of the subject pillar that i i found fascinating in the, in the book is about what is safe area safe places mm-hmm. um and the different characters that you describe in the book are in a way, the safe area to someone else, but also unsafe, to, maybe to the same person. So we have the grandma of um, of the child of Martin that you, which is one of the main heroes in the book, and the grandma in a way she is a grandma, but she is also the mother because the mother is safe, very unsafe. Uh, with addiction to to drugs, but also the grandma, we kind of know that there is a good chance that she will not be there because of the cancer. And I think also about um, the way how you describe the place, how you grow up um, in a safe, unsafe area. And of course, your teacher, Lama Pema, that he's also grow up in a beautiful tradition, but also that were um, um, needed to run away, to, far, to run from Tibet. Um, can you share with us more about the place of safety and the wish for safety mm-hmm. in the book and in the way how you organize the book? Mm. Thank you, Yakir. It's, it's a beautiful question because it really gets to... The, the heart of why intimate relationship is so complex. When we start this, this journey, we are totally existentially dependent on another. Whether or not they can care for us well, skillfully, steadfastly. 
And so we, we will uh, make efforts to cultivate some feeling of safety with another human being. Now, even for, for caregivers who do care for their children or whomever they're responsible for with skill and steadiness and maturity, they will, by nature of being human, uh, at times disappoint, at times not be able to provide care in a way that feels extremely unsafe to the child who's grown dependent upon them. And so this, this dynamic, this tension that you're describing between emotional safety and absence of safety, for most people, is really deeply woven into the complexity of close relationship. And so the challenge as we age is to better understand what have we already lived through around that tension? Were our closest relationships primarily safe with lapses and occasional difficulties, or were they perhaps primarily unsafe and in a way that has left us trying to ward off all, all future experiences of not being sufficiently safe? And then optimally over time, coming to appreciate that there is never any perfect safety that we can garner. It's, it's a really compelling fantasy. And as a clinician, I, I learn a lot about that fantasy because when people are badly hurt, especially early in life, and perhaps especially due to caregivers who for all sorts of reasons could not provide enough emotional safety, then often there's, there's an unconscious fantasy that develops that the only way to risk intimate relationship is to be sure it's totally safe. And anything short of that is not worth the risk, which of course will leave people grappling with a great deal of isolation. And there is a place in the book um, that you have conscious, unconscious wish in a way to adopt even Martin. Mm. And, and I wonder about this role of the therapist because probably, and, and for sure as a therapist for kids, probably there is an inner desire to save them, mostly when the environment is not so safe. And so I wonder about the role of the therapist not to promise of course, the clients, uh, the patient, or even yourself as a therapist. Mm. But also, I wonder about, so what do you try to do in therapy around that, around the place of safety when you work with kids? Mm. Well, this question of, of safety in clinical work and then all the fantasies that get activated for both the therapist and the patient is really something that requires ongoing reflection because I think it's pretty common for, for therapists uh, to have that experience of wanting to somehow prevent a, a patient they care for from suffering extreme vulnerability again. 
And then this, of course, requires some awareness that this, this longing has gotten stirred and that it, it cannot be met. Right? No, no therapist has that power to step in and prevent their, their client, their patient from not experiencing extreme pain or loss. And this is why therapists are encouraged to have a great deal of their own support, their own therapy, their own supervision, so that if they're feeling a longing, and I, as you're referencing, I felt this longing very powerfully in my early work with children, and I, I still feel it with, with patients of all ages, patients in their 80s. I can feel it just as strongly. But as I was entering the field, it, it was a really challenging experience because it was so hard. And we all know this just in any relationship with someone we love and care for. It can be extremely hard to tolerate the limits of our power to reduce somebody else's suffering. So in therapy, the challenge is to create enough safety that trust can develop between a therapist and their patient. Um, and then together explore any fantasies, not that the therapist would be disclosing their own fantasies uh, around this issue with the, the patient, but to create the conditions in which the longing for perfect safety can be explored or with children can be explored through play. Yeah. Thank you. I want to stay in the place of the safety and to try to look at that from another um, perspective that I saw in the book. Um, and it's the invitation that you as a therapist, um, you invite the, the, the patient to come back to places that sometimes are with trauma. And, and we have, in a way, um, an invitation to look at that, but also maybe, of course, to feel it, mm -hmm. but now in a safe zone or safe enough zone. Yes. And I'm thinking about the, if you can speak as a, as a therapist, but also as, as a scholar of religion, um, about this place of, because in, in religion, or at least I will speak, for example, in Judaism, so we have this desire again to come back to the trauma um, by, or by incarnation. So in the mysticism, you have the incarnation of stories from the Bible that coming back. And um, so we have Cain and Havel mm -hmm. who are coming back by you know, not brothers now, but now as a husband and wife, um, desires, relationship, trauma that we try to touch, but now maybe with more tools. Mm. I also think about like the, the idea of in, incarnation, of course, in Buddhism. Um, but there is a wish on a way to touch it again. We have a wish for that. But from the other side there, we have the Lama Pema, who is sometimes tell you, in a way, maybe it's Yakir voice, but I just want to offer it. Let it go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I wonder if you can help us to understand this tension more. Yeah. I find this tension to be so compelling. And it, it really 
um, it speaks to both a meeting point and a departure point in the conversation between Buddhism and Western psychology. You are, of course, absolutely right that a central part of a therapeutic process is having the conditions that support people in revisiting and directly accessing especially trauma or acute suffering that may have been so acute that people uh, dissociated or found other ways of distancing themselves from the experience. And so the, the value, the healing value of revisiting or directly accessing suffering or trauma is not, not to leave people there. This is often the fear people have when they come into treatment, that we're going to open things up and then they'll be out to sea. But the, the work, the challenge is to open the mind so that what happened can be more fully felt and then reflected upon, explored, so that it's it's a, a kind of tacking back and forth between the feeling and the reflecting so that the experience gets a little more integrated rather than just continuously defended against. Now, you you are really hitting on an important point that in, I would suggest, most, most of the great religious traditions, and certainly in the Buddha Dharma, um, there is the suggestion that we don't have to get too fixated on our personal pain. We can zoom out, we can take, we can take a very broad perspective, and even a, a perspective that appreciates we are on a continuum of time. This is one moment. This trauma is one moment. And the human race will evolve and have many meaningful moments that include joyful moments and devastating moments. There are all of these perspectives that help us not, not feel so personally done to by our traumas. And this is especially true in Buddhism, where Practitioners are, in various ways, encouraged to to not minimize pain, right? not to to in any way uh, reduce the reality of our suffering, but to find ways to work with it so that we're not so personally identified with the suffering. Now, that of course can be incredibly helpful. Many people, I would say, especially in the West, if they're not raised in Buddhist families or cultures, when they come to Buddhism, this is a very freeing process of realizing they are more than their traumas. They have precious human life. They have a mind that has all sorts of arisings that will definitely subside. There's really the opportunity to recognize we are all extremely meaningful. We all have incredible capacity, regardless of our trauma history. However, that perspective, that universal perspective that encourages people to disidentify with the traumas can be used defensively 
it can be used as a way to not face into the truth of somebody's trauma history that might actually require more intensive care. And I would suggest psychological care. Wow, thank you. Pilar, can I, may I add maybe one more um, um, element for that, which is um, the place of the bigger narrative, um, which, um, and and we we opened our dialogue with the question of um, what's the benefit of having one big narrative or tradition? And maybe one of them is that sometimes you can let it go because you give your narrative to hold your pain. Um, what we speak a lot about trauma and the narrative around a person with a trauma, like how a soldier to which narrative of the war, the soldier with a post-trauma event is coming back home. Is a community hold them or is a community said like, why to the hell do you went to the military? And, um, so maybe there is something also with a tradition that let it go because something bigger um, can hold your narrative. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you describe so beautifully the, the teachings, the wisdom teachings and the Buddha Dharma, which suggests essentially that, that the reality of consciousness, the reality of the human condition reality writ large can hold us. It holds every aspect of our personal experience. It, it holds every seemingly unbearable moment. And this, of course, can be, can be quite freeing and psychologically healing too. And as your refrain is suggesting that this can sometimes get interpreted as the, the need to let things go, to not, not stay too fixated on the personal, right? not, not get lost in our, our subjective exploration. I would suggest, though, that both perspectives are, are needed from most people. Because we are so personally impacted by what we live through, most of us will need some specific personal care in order to understand what we have lived through. Equally, most of us will need some opportunity to feel that roomy container and to basically be able to put down our traumas, which doesn't mean we have to split off from them or forget they happened but to give the psyche and the body opportunities to rest, to recover. To I love it. I love it. You know, one of the things that my father said that, that it's very important to sleep in the synagogue, that there is a different kind of rest maybe mm-hmm. when you are around people who hold you by praying and you just sleep. And, um, Yes, you, you, you said it so beautifully. So thank you for, for that. Um, 
I want to go to another subject that I found um, so interesting in the book, which is the place of the teacher. Um, you know, when we think about, I, um, let's speak about Western society that probably most of your readers are coming from. So we think about different kind of teachers or role of teaching. Um, so I'm thinking about so many of the Lama that coming from the East, we behave with them differently than how we behave maybe towards um, some of the priests or pastors or the local rabbis. I mean, there is some of the glory that is coming with them, like as if every word is with wisdom and we need to listen to. And then you describe Lama Pema very different, right? And I think that you, you brought him to be a teacher that maybe I will say, what I think he wished to be. It's like, he is a teacher, but also he's a human being. He's falling asleep. He is want to eat like junk food or whatever, you know, he's coming unprepared sometimes to lectures. But then there is another teacher in the book, which is you as a therapist, right? And you bring yourself in a very unique case together. You invite both of you to to join the clinic. And I wonder about that. Like, I, I, I don't have a clear question, but like, I wonder, is it something that would you invite? And, and one more thing, Martin, she's not a Buddhist mm -hmm. and she doesn't come from a Buddhist family. So like, I wonder if it's something that you, what do you think about the image of the teacher? And also, would you invite an imam to a Jewish uh, client or a pastor to or something like that? Mm. Or is that maybe Buddhist is more without color when it comes to our Western mind about the history of the three major monotheistic religions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such good questions. And the role of the teacher is such a fascinating one. And It seems to me, or at least I've always been struck by, that we are primarily learners. And this, this is what marks us as human beings, is our ongoing need and our capacity to learn. And because, because we are relational, because everything about us happens in the context of relationship, We seem to need to learn through another human being. We need someone else to mediate the world for us. Not in every moment and not throughout the course of our life, but we are always in need of teachers. I would suggest this is, uh, this is as needed as friends, as partners, Right? This is a foundational relationship that in, in many Western cultures that are fiercely individualistic really does not get sufficiently addressed or understood. There's almost a kind of aversion to the notion of the teacher coming in rather than each person becoming their own expert, right? Because the, the role of the teacher challenges that expectation that will become totally self-sufficient. So, I mean, one of the reasons why I've been so compelled by, by Buddhism is the way it works with the teacher-student relationship. 
And, and when it's a healthy enough relationship, there's one of real mutuality. There's, there's no submission involved. The idea is that we just need another human being to recognize in us the qualities that are there but are hard for us to recognize in ourselves. And this is probably true of every religious tradition, the great rabbis, imams, etc. They come forth not to dictate to others who they are, but to recognize genuinely who they are so that the people they're working with can notice this spiritual mentor seems to be seeing something in me that I'm, I'm struggling to really cultivate a conscious relationship to. So, so that's just a a beginning response to the, the role of, of the teacher Um, But in terms of why I wanted to involve Lama Pema, my teacher, in in this particular case, it has something to do with his, his wisdom. It also had a lot to do with his childhood. And he, he went through extreme trauma as a child. He suffered tremendous amount of loss and a tremendous absence of safety, although he would not characterize his childhood as, as having been unsafe. Maybe that's my Western projection, but it seems to me many of the circumstances he was dealing with were quite unsafe. And yet he managed to evolve into an adult who uh, was capable, remains capable of incredible sensitivity, compassion, relational abilities. Joy. Yeah, joy, exactly. He did not develop an adult life that was primarily defended against, right? The the truth of what he lived through. And as a result, I think it allowed him to be human, vulnerable, genuine, authentic. Yeah. And what do you think about the idea of invite religious figures <laughs> into, <laughs> into therapy? Yeah. It's a, it's a dicey thing to do. And I, generally speaking, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not anything I've ever done since. In part, because in the clinical dyad, in the consulting room, the, the notion of the frame is, is really important. The notion of privacy and containment, right? This is essential to building trust. And this particular situation, I, I felt, and, and I had a lot of really excellent sound supervision to consider the possibility that it could be interesting for children to meet adults who also had suffered, because so often children feel uniquely ill-equipped. If they're going through something terrible, often there is this feeling that there's something about them that has set them up for this suffering. 
So it can be so, so healing and frankly, revelatory for kids to meet adults who are honest about their own childhood suffering. It's very esteem enhancing, right? They're basically saying to the kid, hey, listen, this, this is part of being a person going through really tough times, losing people you love suddenly, right? There's no shame in it. And it's not necessarily the, the final word, right? It's possible to work this through. Right? It's possible to get to a point where you will start to feel better, more joyful, more capable, more trusting. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I probably, who knows, but it's unlikely I will ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> at that time it 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 felt like the right thing to do yeah um so i cannot resist from asking that but in a way as reading your book um i felt that maybe you also want to invite your teacher to therapy um <laughs> smart dick here <laughs> i i Yes, something there. It's not written, <laughs> but you know the text now work is is stand for itself. This is this is my reading, um, and and I wonder if you can share something about that. I mean, it's incredible how much um, Lama Pema and also the you know the the Dalai Lama and and other teachers who their childhood is full with trauma. And for some incredible reasons that I don't know, I don't know if it's like to trust that or to not trust it, mm-hmm. they fool with joy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a um, very, uh, there is a unique book. I, I don't want to judge it. So I will say a unique book of the Dalai Lama with um, Bishop Tutu mm-hmm. that I think it's called the Book of Joy um, or something like that. I wonder about that. I wonder about two things, if you can say something, teach us something about it. One is, did you want to invite him to therapy? I mean, there is something about the teacher that I feel that he doesn't live his life fully. Again, in the description of the book, it's like he, something in the trauma or in the, also as an immigrant, something is not letting him to be fully what he could be. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And the second place that I would love if you can say something is about how you understand this joy that they hold. Mm. Should we trust it? And if yes, what we can do in our culture in order to have more joy, even when you have trauma. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. You're, you're so, you're so insightful. I mean, having having met so many spiritual mentors, so many very senior Buddhist teachers who had lived through so much trauma, I was struck by how little uh, or how infrequently their trauma was acknowledged. And it seemed to me as a Westerner that there wasn't enough bi-directionality and the way we express compassion. 
it seemed that students were getting all of the compassion <laughs> or disciples and that our teachers, many of whom have well-known stories of extreme trauma, uh, were too often left to manage the trauma on their own and also seemingly with the expectation that their spiritual practice would be enough to work through the trauma. And while I do believe there is immense psychological healing that can come from our spiritual practice, in my personal and clinical experience, it's not enough when we're trying to work through complex trauma. So you are right. I mean, I will admit in my 20s, I, I, I became very curious about very senior spiritual mentors with serious trauma histories who got insufficient support, insufficient clinical care for the difficulties they had lived through. And with Lama Pema, um, as someone I love and someone I care for, I did want to share with him, and I say this without hubris, but just maybe because of who I am and, and my life experience, I, I did want to share with him that there are other traditions, right? There are other approaches to, to suffering that can be quite helpful. And he is a curious person. I mean, he's a brilliant person. He is a, an active learner. And so he, he expressed curiosity about why, a Western clinical approach to suffering warranted exploration. So in terms of the, the second part of the question, that joy, I, I sense that it has a great deal to do with the, um, the role of compassion in Buddhism that there is such appreciation for suffering and not in a way that's meant to amplify the suffering, right? As you were alluding to earlier in our conversation, if anything, the, the emphasis is on disidentifying, letting go, but still the, the foundation, the heart of the tradition, if you will, is compassion. I see your suffering and I'm going to stay with it. I'm going to respond. I'm going to be there with you. And this, this process can radically reduce feelings of isolation. And as a result, people start to feel, not everybody all the time, but often in the tradition, people start to feel that the suffering does not have the power to actually eradicate the joy, all that's needed is that feeling of being in warm, respectful relationship with someone who recognizes the suffering. That is, is such an antidote to suffering that it can release a great deal of joy. So I would say that's one, one big component. You know, the other the other significant component is the emphasis on how interdependent we are, that we don't exist 
and the fundamentally separate way we often feel that we do. And when practitioners really come to experience the truth of our interdependence, which just means that we're relational, right? Our, I mean, just by nature of this conversation, our brain chemistry is changing. We're, we're really impacting each other. When people start to feel that and trust that, again, it can stir a great deal of joy that we're simply not isolated in the way we may have felt or worried we, we were fated to be. Thank you. So as we need to, to, to end, um, I, I listened to an interview with you and uh, the person who interviewed you, he said um, that you are very, um, you are optimistic. Um, I left the book with a question of um, safe sadness. Mm. <laughs> um, I felt very hold, um, but there is also sadness because I do, we don't know what will happen with Martina. Mm -hmm. And there is something for you as a, as a therapist, I, I guess, that it's a point of departure you you hope but um or you you believe but um we don't know mm -hmm. and i wonder if you can say something about that about like how do you how do you left your book uh, when you end the art of writing of the book mm -hmm. and also i think it's connected maybe to the place of the of the teacher of of lama pema and maybe other tradition there is something that I feel that sometimes um, in Western society or maybe more secular Western society, we less speak about the why, why we are here or what is a bigger narrative. And mostly we focus on how to do it. Like, okay, I'm suffering, so how not to suffer or how to deal with suffering. Mm -hmm. Something with the story of your teacher I think brought us not the answer of the why, but the ability to live with big questions. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can say something on both of them. Mm. Well, yeah. The, the book ended in a place that had something to do with just how how my experience was unfolding. But it also ended there intentionally because one of the things that I really wanted to offer the reader is that we are by our nature vulnerable creatures. Mm. This, this really was a central theme for me in, in the book, is the truth of our vulnerability. And it seems that vulnerability is not easy to bear. <laughs> and many of us will, will go about cultivating lives that mitigate against experiencing our vulnerability or waiting to live a life until we are sure we won't be so vulnerable. So part of what I was trying to explore is that the, the, the healing work whether you're talking about a spiritual healing process or a clinical one, 
is, is to allow for our vulnerability, to, to find ways to deeply, deeply accept this, this is the truth of our nature. Right? We, we are born with extremely sensitive psyches. We are born with sensitive bodies. Right? We don't come with a, a hard shell. And what I have valued in both my, my clinical training and my spiritual training is to find ways to, to work with relate to that vulnerability, not, not to exacerbate feelings of fragility or, as you're suggesting, lack of safety, but to simply be on board, aligned with the reality of who we are. Most of us will experience loss and some of us will work really hard to recover from loss so that we're willing to risk loving relationship or, or more vulnerability, right? But the risk is genuine because there is no way to, to create a life that prevents us from future losses. So that's why I didn't, I didn't leave the book uh, in, a, in a place that suggested we were all doing just fine. In fact, none of us were. <laughs> we were all carrying on in our lives to the best of our ability with a lot of uncertainty. My hope was that each one of us was carrying in the, in the mind and the heart some, some capacity to be on board to that ongoing vulnerability. Thank you. So Pilar, thank you for writing To Heal a Wounded Heart and for joining the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Yakir, for this conversation and for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you.